comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 45, <coughs> verse 8. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from man from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I happen to notice this past Tuesday, the date was April 11th, which marks the two year anniversary of the date on which we started our sermon series. On the book of Luke, it was April 11th, 2021. Preached the first sermon from uh, the book of Luke on the introduction. It takes a long time to work through a book like Luke, as, as we do, sort of verse by verse. Uh, we've also taken some breaks along the way. We will take some breaks again this summer. My plan, just to give you the roadmap, roadmap which we'll see if it actually comes to fruition, but... Um, is to continue with Luke through the end of May. That should get us through the end of chapter 21. After that, I hope to have a sort of Q&A or you ask for it sermon series. I'll mention that more about that during announcement time, uh, depending on the number of responses. Maybe that takes us through the summer, or maybe I'll need to insert some other short series in there. And then in August, as college students return from their summer migration, I will return to Luke, beginning in chapter 22, with the talk on Jesus' life. Lord willing, we finish our study of Luke just in time for Advent. <laughs> so, today, we begin looking at Luke's account of Christ's ministry in Jerusalem. A couple weeks ago, Palm Sunday, we saw him riding into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, now we're talking about the events between there and and Monday, Thursday, between Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his last supper that he shared with his disciples. What was his ministry like in Jerusalem? And this section, uh, just a couple chapters, uh, 21 and 22, plus a few verses here at the end of 19. It's all about conflict and judgment. So that'll be fine. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw that as Christ rode into Jerusalem, he wept, right? He wept knowing that his mission of peace would be rejected, that would result in judgment and destruction. But here we begin to see what that rejection looks like. In today's text, to the end of chapter 20, we see conflict that arises as religious leaders reject the authority of Christ. 
They try to test him, trap him, seeking to destroy him. In today's parable, uh, today's text rather, in the parable that we'll see next week, uh, we see the clash between the authority of Christ and the authority of those religious leaders directly. After that, the same religious leaders try to sort of force a clash, if you will, in their testing between the authority of Christ, authority of Caesar. After that, they try even try to pit the authority of Christ against the authority of Scripture. Spoiler, it doesn't really work out. But then in chapter 21, uh, we read Christ's frightening prophecy of judgment, foretells the destruction of the temple, of coming war, destruction of the city of Jerusalem and its residents, coming on the Son of Man. So this is a spicy section in the book of Luke, and it begins with an account of Jesus at his spiciest, I guess. <coughs> No longer tender and mild, he's crunchy and spicy. <laughs> so, scandal in the temple. He drives out the money changers and has a public confrontation with men who were in charge there, or at least who thought they were in charge there. That's exactly what this confrontation is all about. It's about who is in charge. Throughout this whole section, the conflict is a struggle for authority. Christ. So a couple weeks ago, he rode into Jerusalem as king in triumphal procession. A king on a mission of peace, but still a king, nevertheless. Now we see how the established order in Jerusalem responds to King Jesus. They reject his authority and reject him. People don't want Jesus to be in charge. But at present, there seems to be nothing they can do about it. And that's really the key, I think, to a correct understanding and correct application of this uh, section on the cleansing of the temple. It's really about the authority of Christ. By way of an outline here, if you can call it that, I have an outline. I don't know. I'm bad. I feel like I'm bad at outlines, but anyway, here's the plan. I first want to look at the temple cleansing itself and clarify what it does and doesn't mean. Some wrong ways I think the passage has been used or could be used. Then we'll look at the conflict between Christ and the religious leaders, where they come and confront him, point out what it shows us about the authority of Christ versus the way those leaders use authority. Just as a sidebar here before digging into that, authority is a challenging topic. On the one hand, some of our cultural heritage invites us to see authority really as a necessary evil. We tend to see freedom as the ultimate good, Authority of any kind encroaches on my personal freedoms, but we need somebody to be in charge, or my neighbor might encroach on my freedoms even more if there's not some authority to restrain them, so we tend to see it as it's not a good thing, but we need it anyway. On the other hand, some Christians have tended to read certain cultural trends. Things like feminism have been interpreted as a matter of breakdown in authority. Some folks give the impression that if we could just get the authority structure right, everything else would follow and everything would be fine. Often the view of authority can be heavy-handed. Some folks give the impression that authority, whether in church or home, is really fundamentally no different than authority in a military unit on the battlefield. The tone might be different, but ultimately it's about I get to tell somebody what to do and they have to do it. I saw a book of Songs for Children that was all about teaching them about obeying authority, and that was pretty much it. it lines like, quote, obedience will follow orders instantly. If only I could make that stick at home. <laughs> be a little less stressed out. Uh, no, my kids are great. Um, 
complicating things further. You see abuses of authority. And so we have an uneasy relationship with authority. I'm not going to give a full theology of authority here. I'm just pointing out some factors that complicate this for us. As we look at the authority of Christ in the next few weeks, maybe there are some truths that we draw out that can start to add their flavor, I guess, to our thinking here, like little bay leaves simmering in the stew of our concept of authority, or something like that. Um, anyway, the, the temple cleansing. Now that I've said wandered into bay leaves, we'll get back to the temple cleansing. So Luke, looking at his account here, uh, he really condenses his account. Uh, it's just two verses there. Compared to Mark or Matthew, give us much more detail. John certainly gives us a lot more detail, although John was probably writing about a separate occasion. It's all early on in John chapter 2, I believe, where he talks about Jesus cleansing the temple. Apparently, Christ cleansed the temple more than once. I kind of sympathize with that whenever I try to clean my house. It gets messy again. Once again, but anyway, Matthew and Mark give a few more details than Luke about this particular cleansing here in Jerusalem at the end of Jesus' ministry. They also include this incident where Jesus curses this uh, fruitless fig tree uh, before then getting to the part where Jesus confronts the, the leaders, or rather the leaders confront Jesus. Luke doesn't give a fig tree account, and then the result is that Jesus' cleansing and teaching in the temple runs straight into the confrontation scene so Luke really, I think he's condensing this just to bring out this conflict, this clash of authority here. He wants to really focus on that. So Jesus comes in, and he asserts his authority in what's really his house. And these dudes that we meet in verse 47, they don't really care for this. Uh, the chief priests and scribes and principal men of the people are seeking to destroy him. They want to destroy him because he is a threat to their authority. So imagine somebody just walks through our doors on Sunday morning and maybe just goes medieval on our coffee station over there. Flips the tables, dumps out the urns, you know, smashes the Keurig like it's that printer and office space you've seen the movie. He makes, maybe makes some coffee stirrer, spitball blowguns, and drives the fellowship team from the building. I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with some analogy here, but I don't know. Maybe enabling coffee addiction, or maybe you know, we're enabling oppression because we don't have fair trade coffee. Right? He's got some issue with it. Maybe it's legit, maybe it's not. But then he starts preaching out there in the lobby, and people start gathering around and listening to him. Especially the people who get on your nerves. You'll have to pretend that there are some people here who get on your nerves. <laughs> the intruder here he really appeals to those people, whoever they are, for you. Whatever area of ministry you're involved in, he starts to critique it. He pushes every little button on every little pet issue or pet peeve that gets your, gets your collar up or whatever. Whatever interest or, or even leadership role you might have here, he just steps on every toe you've got. So how does that make you feel? I know I would not be happy in that situation. I'd be Dude, who do you think you are? You walked in off the street. You don't know us. You're not even a regular attender here, let alone a member or holding any kind of office. We don't know you. You don't know us. It makes you think you can just waltz in here like you own the place and tell us how to run the church. And, you know, we'd be right to say those things because this random hypothetical guy I just made up doesn't own the place, right? 
So why was it okay for Jesus to put the tables and cleanse the temple? Because he did all those things. <laughs> he did have a rightful authority to do those things. I should probably back up here, give some background about what we're talking about with Luke just calls them those who sell in the temple. So within the temple courts, you had merchants who sold livestock for sacrifices. That's one group. That's what was being sold. Uh, people traveled a long way sometimes to offer sacrifices. You could only make these sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. If you lived a long way off, you had to travel. It's kind of inconvenient to herd livestock all that way, so it's perfectly legitimate to buy an animal when you get there rather than trying to bring it with you on a long journey. The, the law allows you to do that. There are also money changers at the temple. People were required to pay a temple tax, the general upkeep of the temple facility <coughs> had to be paid in proper currency. They didn't take Canadian quarters, I guess, for example. I, well, I know for certain archaeologists are sure that they did not accept the Canadian quarters. <laughs> you had to convert that into some kind of currency that the temple would accept. And so they, you had money changers to assist with this. This isn't wrong per se either. The Old Testament, Exodus 30, I believe, has precedent for temple for the tax, for the upkeep of the temple, and it says according to the shekel of the sanctuary, so I guess whatever currency they accept, whatever weight they use. So Luke says, he just says Jesus drove out those who sold back in the first verse. It probably is meant to encompass everybody, since we know from the other gospel accounts that it was money changers and, and sellers of livestock. And it's not wrong, again, in and of itself, to sell animals or to exchange currency. I don't think there's even necessarily something wrong with doing those things in the temple, which means not in the temple itself, not actually in the building where you offer sacrifices, but just kind of temple grounds or courts, if you will. The problem is exactly what Jesus says it is. My house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. It's robbery. It's not difficult to imagine how this happens. People have traveled for days to reach Jerusalem. They are required by the law of God to make these sacrifices. They need to pay the tax to do it. They have no choice. So what does that mean? It means you can charge them whatever you want, right? What are they going to do? You can charge whatever you want for that land. You can charge whatever fees you want for exchanging the currency. It's not like they're going to just decide, no, that's too expensive, I'm going to disobey God, I'll leave my sin on atonement for. So the problem is a kind of profiteering that in Jesus' estimation is nothing less than robbery. And nothing wrong with selling animals, nothing wrong with making a living that way. It's not like money itself somehow taints the process. So that brings up one of these two ways this passage could be misused. Some folks seem to think uh, Christianity and churches should be devoid of any financial dimension. It just it does kind of feel unspiritual when you start talking about finances. But Jesus talked about money a lot. His point was not to avoid it at all costs, or never mention it, but that how you use it and how you relate to it indicates where your heart is. So it turns out to be very spiritual. So things like Advocating for a balanced church budget does not turn the temple into a debt of robbers. For that matter, to have a budget, to own a building, to have paid staff who are compensated for ministry, 
Those are good things. They don't in and of themselves turn the church into a den of robbers. I don't leave our book note out there where you know we have books and ask for a suggested donation. That's not turning the, the church into a den of robbers. Maybe if we were charging exorbitant prices for them, but we're not because you you just buy them on Amazon anyway. Anyway, and that's not the only reason we're not doing it. Just to clarify, <laughs> there are other reasons. We just ask for whatever it costs for us to, to get the books together. You know, you do have churches under scrutiny for financial improprieties. You have famous pastors under scrutiny for lavish lifestyles. In those cases, the problem is not that there's money. The problem is what's being done with that money and at whose expense, right? People think they're giving to God's work. And that putting a preacher into a pair of sneakers that costs more than my monthly mortgage payment, I'm going to say that's a problem. That's along the lines of the problem in the temple. The problem at the temple, Jerusalem, was that sellers and money changers were taking advantage of the people, brazenly doing so in God's house. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7. And it's interesting, worth looking at the context here of what the temple was meant to be, according to the prophet Isaiah. He says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name, name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So the temple was meant to be a place where all people would love God and serve Him to come and find joy and peace in the presence of God. It's the temple's purpose. It ultimately points to reconciliation that we have in Christ, who is Himself the true temple, the true place where atonement was made. But that's a far cry from the temple that Jesus walked into that day. He described it in terms used by another prophet, Jeremiah, in his temple sermon. Jeremiah's temple sermon is a scathing message that this prophet delivered against those who thought they could carry on serving idols and defrauding, defrauding their neighbors and face no consequences because they had the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They cited like it was a slogan, as we've got the temple, God's not going to touch us even though we're being miserable jerks to everyone, God included. And God says through the prophet, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Centuries later, God the Son did walk into the temple, and he himself saw the people using his house as a den of robbers thereby putting his own name on it, using his authority, using his word, his commandments to compel their neighbors to pay unfair costs, lining their own pockets at the neighbor's expense. Robbery. That's what the cleansing of the temple is about. The authority of Christ, the authority of Christ to cleanse the temple and correct the misuse of God's name, misuse of his own name. So that brings me to the other common misuse of this text, 
Table-flipping Jesus is not a model for Christian cultural engagement. Too often we hear someone justify harsh words or insults by appealing to, well, Jesus turned the tables at the temple. But God in the flesh, walking into his own temple, driving out the corruption in his own house, is not the same as professing Christians who stir up outrage on the internet or mocking people that we are supposed to be reaching with the gospel, or failing at the basic command of Christ to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, or otherwise seeking to wage a battle against flesh and blood instead of spiritual forces of evil. Has it not occurred to us that perhaps Christ is authorized as God and King to do things that he has not authorized you and I to do? I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that the apostles do anything like this, use any kind of physical force like this, or encourage the church to do anything like this. The closest that you come would be the way sin and false teaching are confronted within the church. Paul was concerned for the purity of the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit when he instructs the Corinthian Christians on church discipline, removing this man who sinned in a way that even the Gentiles would recognize as shameful. He certainly has some harsh words for the legalism that is troubling the Galatian church. Even then, there's no flipping of tables, though, or no use of a bullwhip or, or anything else like that. Christ has delegated some authority to the church, and it is the authority to proclaim Christ. We are ambassadors. We proclaim that the King is coming in judgment. We proclaim even things that he is coming in judgment upon. We warn one another if we see one another in unrepentant sin, and we certainly proclaim to be false any system of teaching that contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ambassadors don't carry out judgment before the king comes to carry it out himself. So Christ's cleansing the temple, it, it doesn't justify Christians acting like Jews. Christ is not demonstrating how to treat our enemies. He's demonstrating his own authority. It is, in a sense, foreshadowing what happens when he comes in judgment, which means it also serves as a warning. But as a warning, it is an act of love. Cleansing of the temple, I would argue, was a loving act. The same love that led Jesus to weep as he rode into Jerusalem. Frankly, it is a great mercy to those money changers and merchants that it was Christ, God in the flesh, came that day. If he had come in a cloud of glory as he did in the days of Moses and the tabernacle or when Solomon's temple was built, those who settled would have been struck dead. The sons of the high priest Aaron offered strange fire and they were struck dead. The sons of the high priest Eli essentially robbed portions of the sacrifices that people brought, and God sent judgment on the whole nation at the hands of the Philistines. Now Jesus has already foretold that judgment will come once more, and it will be at the hands of the Romans. Driving them out of the temple, though, at this point is a warning to repent while they still can. More than that, Christ cleansing the temple is an act of love also for the people who came there to meet with God only to be robbed. Jesus drove out the robbers and met with those worshippers himself. 
Maybe they had difficulty buying that lamb for the Passover sacrifice without the merchants there. But they met with a better lamb, didn't they? Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. In him, the temple was once again a place where people met with their God. So again, we see the authority of Christ on a mission of mercy to his people. And that brings us to this radical contrast between the way Christ exercises his authority here and the way that the leaders are exercising their authority. And that really comes out in this conflict when they come and, and question him. The conflict that we see is the fundamental conflict of all human existence, by the way. We want to be God. We don't want God to be in charge. We want to be in charge. So they are seeking to destroy Jesus. So just walked into the temple and took over. They want to be in charge. Now there's a new sheriff in town. They're afraid of the people, though, so as we saw, don't have control here. There we go. They can't destroy him. People are hanging on his words. So they do eventually find some courage and some plan to come up to him and ask him this question. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, from their perspective, these are valid questions. Evicting vendors from the premises, teaching the crowds here, but you're not part of our established order here. We are in charge here. So tell us, please, who authorized you to do these things? The question is kind of sly. It's kind of rhetorical. They really believe Jesus has no authority here because none of them gave him authority to teach in what they are treating as their own house. Jesus' answer, so to speak, is straight up, Fire emojis. Let's get into it a little bit here. Jesus answers the question with a question. I, I didn't know how to verbalize emojis, so I just said it. I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So where did John's authority come from? Heaven or man? They can't answer. Not because they don't know the answer, or at least think they know, but because they know that they'll lose this argument, this public confrontation, no matter how they answer. They don't think that John's baptism, John the Baptist, they don't think that his ministry was legitimate. They don't think he was a legitimate prophet. So they have to say that his baptism simply came from man. But the crowd believes that John the Baptist was a prophet. So if the leaders publicly accuse him of being a false prophet, they're likely to get stoned by an angry mob for slandering the Lord's prophet. On the other hand, what if they say John's baptism was from heaven? Was from God? Well, there's an obvious follow-up to that question, right? Why didn't you believe him? And they don't have an answer to that. There's a deeper reason they can't answer it, though, other than just a PR nightmare. For those of us who do believe that John the Baptist was sent by God, as the Bible says, it's obvious where Jesus gets the authority to do these things. Think about what John the Baptist's ministry was all about. What was he sent to do? What was he preaching? What was his baptism? His baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is Why was the kingdom of heaven at hand? John said, 
He who is mightier than I is coming. Strap of whose sandals I am not unworthy to, I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John was sent to bear witness to the light. Word become flesh. To point to Jesus and say essentially, hey look, it's the Messiah. His ministry pointed to Christ. Does anyone remember, by the way, what happened when John baptized Jesus? The heavens open up, the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus like a dove. God the Father says from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The baptism of John tells you everything to know about the authority of Christ. Yes, Christ is the Son of God. What do you mean by what authority does he do these things? By the authority of Almighty God. By the way, he's the Son of God, which is to say, he is God. That is a can of worms that the religious leaders don't want to open up. It's very interesting how Jesus points to John's ministry here. It doesn't just force them to answer a question, a question that they can't answer. It forces them to confront, really, what is the ultimate answer to their question. Who he is. So he shuts them up, he ends their questioning, goes on teaching, he wins the confrontation. In shutting them up, he also reinforces his authority over against theirs, if they're really in charge. Why don't they just say, look, we're in charge, we're asking the questions here, we asked you first. Instead, Jesus is able to just say, don't answer my questions, not answering your questions. So who's really in control of this conversation? Jesus. More than that, though, his question and the way they answer it, it exposes their character as leaders. They're not interested in the truth here. They're interested in their power. As they discuss Jesus' question with one another, one glaring thing that they don't talk about is John the Baptist. They don't evaluate his character. They don't weigh his teaching. They don't compare his ministry with scripture or any such thing. The only thing that they talk about is what people will think of them depending on how they answer. It's not an elder meeting. It's a PR meeting. They're only concerned with maintaining their image before the people so that they can maintain their position of authority and influence over the people. Remember, these are the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, their responsibilities as priests, mediating between God and man, and scribes teaching the word of God, and the elders leading the people, leading by example, caring for the people in all of these ways, and yet all they care about is staying in that position, maintaining that power, not what is good or right or true, but what benefits them. This is not uncommon for those in a position of power. Happens in governments. Sadly, it happens in churches. I've heard some people say it happens even in universities. Maybe somebody has an opinion about that. The rulers of Gentiles lorded over them, as Jesus said. We shouldn't be surprised by that when it happens. Once again, it's the essence of sin to desire to be our own gods rather than submit to God, to desire control for ourselves. Now, power and authority in and of themselves. They're not attributes. They're attributes of God, shared by all who are made in the image of God, men and women alike, by the way, though maybe not in identical ways. Authority is to be used for God's purposes, for the good of those placed in our charge. 
What happens, though, is that we as sinful people begin to see those positions of authority and responsibility. We don't see them as a responsibility to serve, but as an end in themselves to be maintained and increased. We lead not for the benefit of those we are leading or for the purposes of who gave us that authority. We lead to fulfill our own ambitions, to maintain and increase our own power or wealth or prestige or whatever it may be. Again, this is simply what sinful people are wont to do, are prone to do, and it shouldn't surprise us. It's not at all wrong to be grieved by it. It is, though, a greater travesty when those charged with shepherding God's people begin to devour the flock. But it is a great relief to see the way Christ uses his own authority. He came not to be served, but to serve in his life a ransom for many, as he himself said. He makes the temple into what it should have been, a place where anyone can come and meet with God. Authority is a difficult concept for us because sinful human beings so often and so easily misuse it and abuse it. But Jesus Christ never does. He never has, and he never will. Make no mistake, he is the king. He is in charge. He will judge. And he will judge the world's abuses of authority, great and small, from parents to presidents. But the reign of Christ himself is always good for those who trust in him. His reign he will reign until all enemies are crushed under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. His reign is good for those who trust in him. The reign of Christ is also always glorifying to God. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. God the Father sent Jesus, gave him this authority as Lord and as Christ, Lord as Christ. and since he is perfect man, he exercises his authority in perfect submission to the will of God, so that God is glorified. All human authority will fail at some point in its purpose. Even the best of us will fail. We are sinful people. But Christ's authority never fails to do what it is meant to do. Christ's authority never fails. He is risen and he reigns for the glory of God and for the good of his people forever. And he did not take this authority by force. He didn't buy it with wealth. He didn't secure it with manipulation. What did he do? He won this authority by the power of the cross and by the power of his resurrection he was and is God. But as Paul says to the Philippians, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the authority of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, through your spirit, you have shown us your Son. And through seeing your Son, we see also God the Father. We see the very heart of God, and we see the nature of your authority. You are a good God and great King over all the earth. We confess that we as sinners have rebelled against your authority, even today in so many ways. We confess those of us who are in various places of authority, whether it's parents or employers or fill in the blank, we have faced the temptation to abuse that authority. And maybe in some ways we have given in to that temptation. Father, we pray that in Christ you would forgive us for our rejection of your authority, for our misuse of our own. Thank you that you have shown us a better way of Christ, whose authority is always for the glory of God and always for the good of those who trust in him. We recognize, Lord, that we are also people who live in a simple, fallen, and broken world, and that there are undoubtedly those here who have suffered under the misuse of authority in various ways, great or small. Maybe a parent, maybe an employer. We recognize that as we think of the persecuted church across the globe, that there are those who have suffered under the misuse of the authority of the state. Lord, there are no quick and easy answers to the suffering that we face. And yet, we do pray that when we do suffer, you would remind us, help us to see and know who Christ is, to see how he uses his authority for our good and for the glory of God. Help us to trust in the one who reigns. The king of all the universe is the one who loved us, gave himself up for us, even to the point of the cross. Father, in all these things, I pray that you would help us as your church, as Christ's first church, to submit to the authority of Christ, to do everything that we do, to point not to our own authority, not to build our own influence, but to put Christ first, to proclaim the authority of our crucified and risen Savior. He might be all in all. You might be glorified in us. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.